morning and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. In the last couple of weeks, we have watched as one school or conference after another has decided not to play sports in the fall. The public relations ramifications are serious and public relations professionals are paying attention to the language around those announcements and the impact those words can have on various stakeholders. My guest today is Steve Dittmore, who recently wrote about his observations on how schools are managing a looming crisis the PR crisis. Steve has a very unique blend of sport industry practitioner experience with an academic background in both sport management and journalism and mass, mass communications. He worked at two Olympic Games, both the Atlanta 1996 Games and the Salt Lake City Games in 2002. He has a PhD in educational leadership and organizational development from the University of Louisville, and he's currently a professor and assistant dean at the University of Arkansas. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Karen, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So before we dive into what we were supposed to talk about, we had news yesterday that broke about um, some interesting changes at Vanderbilt University. Can you bring our, our listeners up to speed on that? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, Vanderbilt really hasn't publicly stated this yet, but uh, it's been reported in the Tennessee and in other media outlets that Vanderbilt is going to effectively do away with its athletic communications or what has historically been known as the sports information department within its athletic department and subsume those responsibilities into the university relations or the university communications area. Um, and, you know, this is kind of the first time you've or really seen this, particularly at a Division One, Power Five, SEC type institution. These things typically operate very independently of one another, and so, needless to say, it's caused a lot of uh, a lot of concern, consternation among folks that work in the athletic communication space. And, and it's it's interesting because if anything, athletics communications has enlarged over the last several years, primarily with the evolution of digital media and creating yeah. digital content. And so it's an interesting time to subsume an, an athletics communications office inside of a university communications office. Obviously it has implications for those who are working in that department. Um, you had some thoughts, one of them of course, which is obvious, which is, fun, which is cutting, cutting um, salaries and cutting positions. But you also wonder if there's a time in this situation where they're perhaps trying to get a hold of their message. And this ties into what you wrote about an athletic director. You, Do you think Vanderbilt wants to get a hold of the sports and pandemic message a little bit more tightly? You know, I, I don't know that. I mean, I don't um, have any firsthand knowledge uh, or interaction with people at Vanderbilt. But I will say that Vanderbilt has been uh, kind of a more progressive leader in terms of how it views athletics in relation to the overall mission of the university and of their student body and what they're trying to trying to teach their students that attend there. Um, very, very different certainly from SEC institutions and state land grant uh, type institutions and much more aligned with what I think you would see at a division three or in a liberal arts institution. You know, I think of like the Ivy league and the Patriot league as institutions uh, as conferences rather that kind of have a very different view as well about the role of athletics within, uh, within higher education. I think Vanderbilt kind of strikes me as one of those that kind of stands out among those institutions at the power five level that doesn't really necessarily beat to the same drum. Um, I, so I don't know that it's necessarily about getting the message, um, controlling the message for the pandemic. 
so much as it is perhaps a way to streamline operations. Uh, you know, you mentioned, yeah, they're doing the same things that virtually athletic communications is doing the same things that virtually every institution is doing on the education side, which is producing unique content, distributing it out on platforms to various stakeholders. And if Vanderbilt views athletic stakeholders as being the same as stakeholders for the campus at large, then maybe they want to be able to provide some consistency of messaging that way. Yeah, yeah, well, let's dive into that. I mean, that's one of the things you talked about as mm -hmm. uh, your, your article was entitled, uh, How Schools Should Announce Their Decision to Discontinue Sports During the Pandemic. You wrote it for Athletic Director U, which is an online site that tries to provide just-in-time just guidance for athletic directors about issues that they're facing. So it was a really appropriate article. And, and tell us a little bit about the research you've been doing. Yeah, so I've been writing for ADU, as we call it, uh, Athletic Director U, for a couple of years now. And try to provide um, you know, some thought pieces and, and try to look at it uh, and provide guidance, as you said, to, to athletic administrators. And so what I did, I uh, got this idea, and this plays kind of on my background as a communications person and a journalism major and having worked in sport public relations for a number of years, tried to look at, well, how do athletic departments make this announcement? How do they go about creating messaging around what is at the end of the day a negative news story. Nobody wants to cut, cut opportunities for student athletes. Nobody wants to eliminate coaches' positions. Nobody wants to eliminate the support personnel that go along with that. And so um, how, how do athletic departments do that? So what I did is I, I, first of all, I delimited this to just the division one schools. There's been 22 division one schools that have announced uh, program cuts or eliminations or suspensions, depending on the nature of the university. Um, since the pandemic hit in mid-March and tried to break down looking at the messaging and seeing what kind of commonalities, what kind of themes might have emerged, tried to use a theoretical framework to help guide those, those um, conclusions and those observations. And, and I think what, what you see at the end of the day is maybe some suggestions for best practices or things that athletic administrators certainly should be considering when they make these announcements, um, which at the end of the day um, are difficult to do in this environment in which everybody is dispersed. Nobody is there centrally. You can't look a student athlete in the eye in a, in a room and be able to tell them, hey, this is why this happened. And so you've got to use the, the electronic medium as a way to do that. So that was kind of the purpose of, of what I set out to try and, and, and examine. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty fascinating article. So we've got the, a certain number of programs. I think you mentioned 22. Can you break those down for us? How Was there any pattern that you found? Yeah, I mean, so um, of the 22 institutions that have announced program cuts, there have been a total of 26. And, and I exclude from this um, Connecticut, which has made announcements that won't impact FY21, but they will impact FY22. Uh, but a total of 26 uh, Division One programs on the men's side, 18 Division One programs on the women's side. Of those, um, eight uh, for both gender for tennis, um, swimming and diving, there have been three swimming and diving, two male swimming and diving, uh, three baseball programs that were cut, uh, three indoor men's track and field programs, and then some, you know, one-offs here and there, uh, you know, a men's lacrosse program, a cross-country program, a soccer program here, a softball program there. 
Um, and so that kind of, you know, shows you kind of the picture of, of what we're looking at. Now, I should say, too, that none of these programs have been cut by what we would consider the power five schools. Some of them have been by group of five, some of them by what we would classify as FCS, and then some by, um, I think there's a couple in there that don't sponsor football. So, you know, the traditional one AAA uh, schools. Uh, and so what, what we find is, or what I observe is that early on, there was no real blame of the pandemic, both uh, Old Dominion, which announced on April 2nd that it was going to cut men's wrestling in Cincinnati on April 14th, that announced that it was going to cut men's soccer. Those were two things that they tried to position as, as considerations that they were uh, engaged in or conversations they were engaged in long before the pandemic hit. Um, and as we go forward then into May, where you have many universities announcing things, and even into June, where we had a rash kind of toward the end of June, a lot of, of universities making decisions to cut, we see much more of this being attributable to the uh, effects of COVID-19 and the pandemic and the lost revenues. And there's, there's a couple of ways to interpret that. Um, and I think one of the things that I find about the messaging is that by blaming the pandemic for this, it effectively is saying in some ways, we didn't have our financial affairs in order. We couldn't withstand, we don't have the big enough margins. We're so razor thin, we can't afford to have a loss of any amount of revenue. And so when that happens, we have to make cuts. We can't generate revenues elsewhere. Um, and none of these schools chose to cut big revenue sports. Most of them chose to cut um, what we would consider Olympic sports. And very few of them cut sports where there's a large uh, or the potential for a large spectator audience. You know, the fact that a baseball program or in case of Alabama Huntsville on men's ice hockey program, which they later reinstated after private funding um, allowed it to persist. But for the most part, these are things like golf and tennis and swimming and diving that don't in track and field and cross country that don't generate large spectator audiences. Well, and for my listeners who have been also paying attention to the argument that many of those very same athletes bring tuition revenues to campus mm -hmm. and, and, and in effect pay for them their own way and then some, we could get into another discussion about where those tuition revenues end up, but that's not what we're going to focus today. That'll be the yeah. topic of another podcast. But let's start with where do the announcements, uh, who were they directed to in the audience, and then what office did they come from on campus? So, and that's a good question. Um, and I, I, I didn't really truly, I mean, um, break down how many of them, at least in the article, how many of them were made by athletic directors versus presidents. Um, anecdotally here, I can tell you that for the most part, these, these announcements were attributable to the athletic director, although there was some reference to the president. I would say it was probably about a two-thirds, one-third split on on that, maybe even closer to three quarters that were announced by the athletic department. And so what I did is I found the original news release or announcement that was made on the athletic website about this. And, you know, I saved a copy of that locally uh, as a PDF and then, you know, link to it uh, in the article to, to where those were still available. And I tried to look at, well, what was the messaging there? And it was clear that the audience that was for the actual news release is really just a traditional PR thing. You know, this is, we're going to put out this news release. We're going to disseminate this information. And these are the talking points that we're going to use. 
several universities uh, and, and increasingly more as, the, as we saw time go on, also created a supplementary document that was a, what do I call an FAQ or a frequently asked questions document that sought to really answer specific questions um, that the universities might have anticipated would be asked or that they saw other universities addressing as well. Things like, will private fundraising help save these programs? Where should I go if, I, if I'm an athlete and I want to transfer? What kind of support services are available to me? Will my scholarship be offered? So in some respects, the FAQs really went at the specific audience of the athletes because again, they're not able to meet with those individuals in person. And so this became an effective way to, to distribute that information. But for the most part, I think what, they, what the universities were doing was following the traditional guidelines of, of you know, disseminating information and just sending it out to, um, to an audience that would historically be like a media audience or a stakeholder audience, yeah. Yeah. Well, you talked about something that I hadn't heard of before, but it's a theory called the typology of image restoration mm-hmm. uh, founded by William Benoit. Talk to us a little bit about this. What does that mean? So, so the idea of, of Benoit's typology here, uh, developed in the mid-90s, is that in instances of crisis or instances of negative news in which an organization needs to repair its image, there are six broad ways that um, organizations go about doing that. And then there's some sub-tactics that exist underneath those things. Um, and it's really designed to... Um, you know, at, at its core, you know, some of the thing, the suggestions in the typology includes mortification, you know, apologies for this, you know, we're sorry that this happened, you know, and it, 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 the theory is kind of grounded in corporate, uh, corporate image repair. And so things like Exxon Valdez as, is kind of a, a precursor to this, you know, what did Exxon do after their, the Valdez spilled oil into the, into the ocean? Um, you know, and to look at those things. Um, but it's, it's a growing line of literature that has emerged within sports because individuals and organizations do screw up in sports and they have a need to apologize or they have a need for what we would call corrective action to ensure that something like this isn't going to happen. You know, and in this case, the approach that I used was to use this, this theory and this typology, but really... Th- it isn't in reaction to a negative occurrence other than to be viewed negatively because they had to cut a sport. You know, so in terms of how are we explaining the action that we are taking, which is undoubtedly a negative action and is going to be subject to criticism, is going to be subject to frustration, what sort of messaging are we using? And, um, you know, there, there were some prominent things that, you know, most organizations will try to do. They'll try to use what is known as a bolstering tactic, where we're going to talk about the things that we still do well um, and bolster the positives and try to kind of minimize the impact of the negatives. And so that was something that was, that was used pretty prominently by, by a number of the institutions was to talk about the things that were, that were positive that they did um, you know, there was some, some other aspects of t- to try and evade responsibility. Um, you know, well, we really couldn't do anything. This was provoked by the pandemic. Um, you know, it wasn't our fault that we did this. We didn't want to. We were forced to do it. Um, 
And then, you know, the, the other one that I think is always very effective is to be able to um, provide some transcendence, some public, you know, transparent information and try to really look at things about um, allowing stakeholder questions and answers to be framed in a way that the athletic department wants um, and um, put it into language that minimize the impact of the decision. That's interesting. So let's take that down to a specific example that you use, which is Appalachian State. Walk us through what they did. So App State cut three sports. They cut men's soccer, men's tennis, and men's indoor track. Um, you know, and the, and the idea just of cutting an indoor track is interesting because it doesn't really impact the overall number of participation opportunities as long as they're still outdoor track. Uh, it just shortens the competitive season from being from, you know, November through June to now being more or less March through June um, and, and competing in outdoor track. But men's soccer and men's tennis. And so Appalachian State used this by, they were one of the first ones to really do an aggressive, frequently asked question document, their Q&A document. And um, it allowed them to really position the university's decision relative to the larger institution and the structure that existed. It allowed them to answer questions about um, how does this impact fundraising? Uh, how does this impact ongoing construction projects that might be in play? Um, and also, you know, one of the things they stressed is that it, it more closely aligns the university with its peers in terms of its competition within their conference and other institutions that they might think of as, as that. And so by doing this, by using those kind of transcendent approaches, they, um, they, I think came across better than some other institutions by, by uh, the type of information they were disclosing, the transparent nature of how they were addressing some of this and, and just being able to get their talking points across. So let's flip it the other way. You noted the two schools from the Big Sky Conference tried to shift the blame. Can you walk us through what they did and why it may not work? Well, and so in this instance, what happened is the Big Sky and the two schools you're alluding to are Northern Colorado and Southern Utah, both of which cut men's and women's tennis programs. Um, what, they, what they did was in their announcements, they cited a rule change from the Big Sky Conference, their parent conference, in which it changed the number of sports that this, the institution must sponsor in order to maintain membership within the conference. So it provided more flexibility to the institutions. And so by doing that, I think what they, my interpretation of what UNC and Southern Utah were doing was shifting the blame and saying, well, you know, in a way, Big Sky prompted this because they changed their rules and that allows us to do this. Um, and, and still maintain our membership in the institution. So it, it's kind of a, an evade responsibility and shift the blame type of, of approach. Um, you know, and, they, it, and, and I guess I should walk back one thing. You know, these things, these, these approaches are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, most organizations use a number of tactics um, in their announcements. So just about every organization tried to bolster it in some fashion, but others used differing tactics like shift the blame or evade responsibility alongside the bolstering approach. One of the things you mentioned in the article was about this business of nuances in headlines and the concept of quote unquote reducing offensiveness. Mm -hmm. Explain to, to senior leaders in higher education who may be contacted by an upset parent or an athlete how verbal messaging 
uh, works and how to communicate difficult news in person, you know, in yeah. two minutes or less. <laughs> sure. Well, so, so one of the things that struck me was that five institutions, um, Central Michigan, East Carolina, Appalachian State, Wright State, and Boise State, use the exact same headline for their news release, which was the university, Boise or Central Michigan, whatever, athletics announces program change. So it's a pretty benign description. Um, it, it is summarizes what is taking place. And it, 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 I, I make the comment that it wasn't likely to uh, cause an immediate visceral reaction because a program change, well, that could be any number of things, right? I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that a sport's being eliminated. Whereas universities that did state something like that in their headline um, chose really not to use words like cut or eliminate, but rather the kind of less offensive discontinue, which doesn't sound as finite or as violent, I guess, as cut or eliminate. Um, a couple other universities announced that they were suspending their programs, which is, is a little different. Discontinue means that we're not going to have this going forward. And there's really no hope. Suspend is, well, we're going we're gonna to pull the plug on it for a year and see where, where we are a year from now with regard to our finances. But you know, indefinitely suspended um, could often uh, translate into permanent discontinuance. So yeah, I, I think there is some nuance in language that um, you know, how how words are used, particularly in an environment where, you know, you can't see nonverbal reactions. It's very two-dimensional in this announcement. It's black and white. It's what's, what is printed there. And, you know, unfortunately, as a society, we've all evolved into being very reactionary toward things and, and not really holding out for explanation and interpretation. We just choose to immediately go somewhere based on our worldview and say, oh, well, this has to be. Um, so it's even more important, I think, in that time to really be able to present an language and, an, and a message that is in what the university wants that puts as positive of an approach as they possibly can on what is just a really negative overall uh, news story and decision. I really have to echo that because as I've tracked on the COVID-19 updates on various university and, and athletic department websites, I've noticed um, that it's, it's not, you know, fall sports to be canceled. It's COVID-19 update. And then you have to look at the actual date it was posted to see how recent that update has been. Um, any thoughts on why universities are taking that tact? You know, so... I would say that universities and athletic departments in particular are so reliant on um, private giving. So alums, donors, you know, people to support their, their endeavors, whether it's on the academic side of the house or the athletic side of the house, that I think there is a, a I have no evidence to support this other than my own gut feeling, but that there is a fear that if a university comes out ahead of the curve on something and makes a decision, that people are going to immediately have a negative reaction to it. And so by blaming or shifting the blame or evading the responsibility by saying, well, this isn't really what we want to do, but it's what we're forced to do because of COVID-19 and COVID-19 this and COVID-19 that, um, it softens it 
somewhat, I think. I think that the average person says, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, this has impacted all of life and I can see where that's coming from. Um, but, you know, kind of taking it back to some of the things I observed, not every athletic department included language about the pandemic or COVID-19 as its reasons for discontinuing or making its decision, which suggests to me that these were, maybe it was just a convenient reason to do that. Maybe they were thinking all along, well, we're going to get rid of this men's and women's golf program, or we're going to get rid of indoor track. And this just was the catalyst that allowed us to do that. Um, so that, that, that's my reaction, I guess. To, yeah, to, no, I mean, yeah. that make, there's, a, there's certainly been a sentiment around these, especially when programs like Cincinnati and Old Dominion initially dropped their teams that, you know, they're just using the pandemic as an excuse to either put more money into football or to, you know, account for their salaries or those kinds of things. But I think that we're at that point now, especially this week, with sort of the tipping point of having to make decisions about either A, whether you're coming back in full, B, you're coming back just with a conference schedule, C, you're not coming back at all, or, or D, you're going to bring back <clears throat> a certain group of athletes and not another group of athletes. This, this nuancing around messaging is going to be really important. Yeah, I think it is, you know, and I think, you know, one of the things you just said there reminds me of something else that I, that we observed in this or that I, that I wrote about, which is the idea that, um, you know, these athletic departments that had the message about, um, you know, the, the, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find the exact language that I used here so that I, um, What, what they're saying is that, you know, like Southern Utah, here it is. I've got it in front of me now. Southern Utah made the statement, now that, quote, now that tennis is gone, we can make the experience better for our remaining athletes. Well, I read that. Um, oh, excuse me, that's, what, that's what, I, what I read with their statement that said, their statement was that Southern Utah could now focus its available resources on the remaining 15 sports and provide a more competitive experience to the student athletes. What I interpreted that was, excuse me, what I interpreted that was, was that now that tennis is gone, we can make this a better experience for our remaining athletes, yeah. which I think is not what they intended, but by saying, well, we're going to really support these other sports and create a better experience for existing student athletes. Um, I think what they're doing is slapping the, uh, those other student athletes on the backside on the way out and saying, you know, well, thanks for coming, but you really didn't contribute to this. Furman did the same thing where it said, we're going to push forward together with a strong 18 sport athletics department that demonstrates academic excellence, financial stability, gender equity, and sustainable competitive success as if baseball and lacrosse were not contributing to those things, that they were not helping with academic excellence or financial stability or gender equity. And so I think universities need to be careful with that language so that it doesn't backfire and it doesn't get um, misconstrued or misinterpreted somehow. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point because you, you could also be looking at donors. You could be offending by those comments who wanted to support the baseball or lacrosse or tennis or or golf programs. They could be like, well, then, you know, I'm going to cut my affiliation completely with the university at this point. Yeah. And you saw, you, I'm sorry, you saw that a little bit with Bowling Green and Alabama Huntsville, which were able to generate enough 
private donations to allow those programs to be reinstated, at least on a temporary basis. And some, this was a, you know another conclusion. Some athletic departments, in their frequently asked questions, addressed that head on and said, you know, nope, this isn't going to be an option. I don't care how much money you can come up with. Cross country is not coming back, and here's why. Yeah, yeah, as, and as part of the FAQs that you talked about earlier. Yeah. So a number of the folks who listen to this podcast regularly are folks who either aspire to be a president, are in their first first presidency, or perhaps are new trustees on a, on a college or university board of directors. What kinds of advice would you give to them about navigating these difficult waters around taking things, taking away opportunities at this time? Nobody likes to take away opportunities from students. So what kinds of things can, can they say, can they learn from this, this research that you've done? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it, it, there's a larger picture here, which is, you know, cutting certain sports that do generate participation opportunities while simultaneously generating revenue through tuition and student enrollment. Um, taking away those opportunities, I think, is, is problematic for the university. I mean, it, you know, student students go to campus to continue or to create an identity. And if, if I'm a high school athlete and I play lacrosse and I'm not ready as an 18 year old to lose my lacrosse identity, but I want to go to college and I want to continue that there are avenues for that individual, whether it's NAIA schools or division three or division two, but there are avenues to continue that much like, you know, universities create majors, they create other extracurricular activities that appeal to a certain audience and a certain demographic. And, you know, students that play the trombone want to continue playing the trombone. And so they go to, go to college and they, they become part of the marching band or they become part of the, you know, the choral, um, you know, the choir or something like that to continue singing. So taking away those opportunities in sports is, I think, problematic for the larger university. So, I mean, Furman was one of these that I, I think really stuck out to me because Furman is a small campus, less than uh, a thousand total male students on their campus, just under a thousand male students. And they cut, or right around a thousand, they cut 90 some odd male athlete participation opportunities between baseball and lacrosse. That's like taking one of every 12 male students, you know, sorry, you don't get to come here and do that. You can still come here and pay your tuition, but your reason or your identity for being on campus is going to be taken away in some respect. Yeah. Yeah. These are really complex decisions. And I think the messaging around it becomes so crucial, not only to university, um, uh, the students who remain behind, but also just to the university's reputation, because this this process can really damage a university's reputation if it's not handled correctly. Steve, anything else that you can think of that our audience should know about this? No, I appreciate the opportunity to, to come on and, and, and speak. It's, uh, it's great to reconnect with you. I know we've, we've crossed paths uh, over, over the last decade or so in, in this business, but it's uh, great, to, great to reconnect. Absolutely. Steve Dittmore, thanks so much. Thank you, Karen.